Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to Aramco F1 Focus, the podcast that aims to get you thinking about Grand Prix racing that little bit differently. I'm Tim Silver, your host, and for the final time this series, I'm joined by two men who love nothing more than a good old chinwag about Formula One. It's racing driver and broadcaster Alex Brundle and Sean, virtual stat man Kelly, the doyen of F1 stats. Sean, how's it all going? I very much appreciate being called the doyen of F1 stats. That's a new, that's a new terminology to apply to me. <laughs> and Alex, what about you? What's a doyen? I think my, my nana used to have one of those to put under a kettle. <laughs> I have to admit, I, 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 did have to, uh, I did have to Google it. Thanks, producer Johnny, um, for that. Well, I did have to Google it, but it, it's the pinnacle. He's the man. He's the oh. one, the only, the, the higher power. I totally agree. And, uh, and I'm fine, thank you. Just sorting out my own racing for next year before calling the final round of, of uh, Formula 2 and Formula 1 for the year. Alex, you are definitely the doily of racing drivers, I can assure you. That's the word, that's the, that's the word I was getting. <laughs> Good stuff, gents. Let's get going, shall we? This week, we're going to kick off with Sean's stat focus, and I'm sure I felt the earth move. It tremored earlier this week. I felt a distant rumbling, a magnetic force, a gravitational shift caused by a powerful potential statistician conclave. Sean, am I right? I'm afraid you are, Tim. Yes, indeed. There is much to discuss that required a statistician's conclave. It has been reported in the media that Max Verstappen has broken the record the highest win percentage in an F1 season. When he took the chequered flag for his 17th win of the season in Sao Paulo, it meant he'd won 85% of the Grand Prix held in 2023. Now, even if he failed to win the final two races of the year, he would still eclipse the 75% success rates of Alberto Ascari in 1952. News copy was published, social media graphics were prepared, all hail the most successful driver in any season in history. But I immediately thought something was amiss. Once again, it was incumbent upon me to call this statistician's conclave, so we may deliberate over whether or not this stat was really correct. Now, Ascari won six of the eight World Championship events held in 1952. So yes, that would be a win percentage of 75%. But upon further review, Ascari didn't take part in all eight of those races. The opening round of the 1952 World Championship of Drivers took place in Switzerland, which was still allowing motor racing in those days prior to the Le Mans disaster. Now, Ferrari were there with Giuseppe Farina, Piero Taruffi, and Andre Simon, but there was no sign of Ascari. Where was he? Well, that was the year that Enzo Ferrari decided to enter the Indianapolis 500, which was round two of that year's championship. Ascari would be the man to drive the so-called Ferrari Special, but first he had to qualify. And qualifying at Indy was on the same weekend as the Swiss Grand Prix. 
Ascari was therefore absent from that first race, but he did qualify for the Indy 500, which he subsequently competed in, but didn't win. Now, this, however, was not a Grand Prix, but an American Automobile Association event that counted toward the World Championship of Drivers. This therefore means that Ascari only competed in six World Championship Grand Prix in 1952. And as he won all six, it gave him a 100% win record. Now, even if you throw in his failure to win the Indy 500, he still boasts an 86% win percentage, which beats Verstappen's post-Brazil success rate. This is one of those instances, Tim, where uh, anomalies in the early days of Grand Prix racing have come back to haunt us again. Now, Sean, didn't we have another statisticians conclave earlier this season? Just remind us what that one was for. We did, indeed. It was uh, sort of post, uh, well, around about the time of the Austrian Grand Prix, because earlier in the season, Max Verstappen was chasing the record for consecutive laps in the lead in the World Championship, and that was also an Ascari record. Now, it was reported the Ascari led 305 consecutive laps in 1952. But while reviewing uh, the record, we realized that, hang on a minute, we've got uh, one lap more than we should. Ascari only led 304 because back then the French Grand Prix uh, was declared over at exactly three hours. Can you imagine a Grand Prix these days where they declared it over when it, the time rolled over to the top of the hour instead of crossing the line? Well, some people considered it Ascari had crossed the line on the last lap and led an extra lap. No, that didn't count. It was three hours and done. So Ascari was credited with an extra lap that he shouldn't have been. So that's the kind of nerdy stuff that occasionally I have to bring some of the nerdiest minds together and, uh, and uh, sort of rub anoraks together for a bit and decide for ourselves what is and is not the correct record. So it does seem, Sean, that a lot of these, these conclave calling events <laughs> are, are based around the was it a Grand Prix, wasn't it a Grand Prix, how many of the Grand Prix counted towards the World Championship sort of discussions. Can you give us, and this is one that always uh, being sort of of a, of a generation who only know Formula One as an organised sequence of races, within a world championship, uh, and that's that. Can you give us a feel for the the time period where Grand Prix racing was uh, way more ad hoc than, than it is now, and how many races a year there might be where Formula One cars would get together, all the greatest, greatest drivers would race, but no one would consider it a world championship event? Um, well, in terms of, do you mean in terms of like the non-championship races that with the sheer amount of non-championship? When races did the non-championship races stop? When, when, what, what's this period of which we talk where there are these non-championship races, and how many? About how many were there per year? Well, it would vary. The last non-championship Formula One race was the 1983 race of champions, um, and that in itself was kind of out, out on a limb a little bit because. What non-championship events had been dying off towards the end of the, uh, the 1970s. There was a series called the British F1 World Champ, uh, British F1 Championship. Um, if you can imagine a domestic series just for Formula One cars, it's quite a, an unusual thing. Um, but yeah, 1983 was the last one. There was a few others like the 1979 uh, Race of Champions. There was a 1978 International Trophy at Silverstone. Uh, the 1979 Dino Ferrari Grand Prix at, San, at uh, Imola, which is a precursor to what became the San Marino Grand Prix. And of course, we still race at Imola 
uh, these days. But in the 60s, in the 50s and the 60s, there were many more uh, non-championship races than actually championship races. I think at uh, the start of the 1960s, there, were, you know, there might be 20 or so you know, non decent non-championship events um, in places like Rome, um, you know, and, and there'd be test events for other Grand Prix um, before, because they used, to, they used to have a test event that was non-championship before they would become a, a world championship event. Um, for instance, the 1972 Brazilian Grand Prix, um, which uh, caused some confusion uh, with some, some promos uh, in Brazil because people wanted to say it was the 50th Brazilian Grand Prix, but hang on a minute, it was actually 51, isn't it? If you include the non-championship race as well. So you, you, that can cause some problems in the record books as well. But certainly in the 50s and the 60s, there will be more non-championship events uh, than actually world championship status. And that's why there, was only, there would only be less than 10 Grand Prix a season at championship level. And are there other drivers on the grid, Sean, who have had slightly ambiguous career achievements? Well, there are. In fact, Lewis Hamilton, of course, who is, uh, let's say, the doyen of uh, uh, record holders in Formula One. Well, he, of course, he has 103 Grand Prix wins as at, at the time of uh, recording this uh, podcast. But uh, he is said to have the all-time record for most consecutive classified race finishes, which is 48 in a row. Started at Silverstone 2018 and finished at the Bahrain Grand Prix of 2020. He then missed the Sakir Grand Prix of 2020 because of a positive COVID test. Uh, and, but he came back after that and then finished another 14 consecutive races. So the record books say Hamilton finished 48 in a row. But if you overlook the fact that he didn't participate in, one of the, in a race there, he actually finished 62 consecutive race starts. So which record do we use? Because Verstappen is now closing in on it. At the time of recording, he's finished 39 in a row. He's starting to get close to that 48 in a row. So when he gets the 48 in a row, we could have another situation where there's a load of social media graphics. Max Verstappen's got the longest ever classified finishing streak. And we're going to have to go in again. We're going to have to get another conclave together. And we're going to have to decide for ourselves. No, 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 no. Hamilton actually finished 62 in a row. The tectonic plates will not know what hit them. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We will have to. We will have to completely reform the whole idea of podcasting, so that we can get this right. It's, it's a world-ending event. Is there anything else from the early days of the World Championship that's caused permanent anom uh, an anomalies in the record books? Yes, there, 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 there are several things as as the the sort of format of the World Championship came together in the in the formative decades. One of my favourites is shared drives. Back, until 19, up until 1964, uh, cars could be shared between more than one driver. It wasn't the exclusive domain of one driver. And there are a couple of examples which are just brilliant. For instance, Luigi Fagioli and Juan Manuel Fangio took a shared win in the 1951 French Grand Prix. But Fagioli only drove the first 20 laps in that car. He was running in third place when Fangio took over, Fangio drove the last 57 laps. So he drove the vast majority of the race uh, and that car was first across the line. So Fa Fagioli and Fangio are credited with a win. So you end up with one race and two winners. So if you look at the all-time record books, there are, there are more race winners than there are actual races, which confuses people when they try and add it up and they say, hang on a minute, this doesn't add up to the right number. Um, now this is significant because Fagioli was 53 years old um, at the time of that race. 
and the record books recognize him as the oldest race winner in the history of the World Championship. But was he really? Because he was in third place and only drove the first 20 laps of the race. Now, what makes it even weirder is that Fagioli was put into the car that Fangio had vacated, that Fangio had originally started the race. Fagioli crossed the line and to finish that race in 11th place. So Fagioli was in 11th place at the checkered flag, but he was also the winner of the race. So he finished first and 11th in the same Grand Prix. So that's a real conundrum. What do we do with that one? We sort of split him in half. Fangio also won the race and finished 11th. So that's a real, uh, that's a real uh, sort of head scratcher. I'll give you a good, another example. Alfonso Di Portago drove 70 of the 100 laps at Aintree in 1956. He was in fourth place before he handed over to Peter Collins. Peter Collins rose to second place by the checkered flag. Di Portago was therefore credited as the first ever podium finisher from Spain. That was the only podium finish for a Spanish driver until Fernando Alonso in 2003. But did Di Portago really get on the podium? Because he was not in a podium position when he handed the car to Peter Collins. It was a shared drive and a shared podium finish. But the record books say Di Portago was on the podium. Was he really? Well, I don't know about that. Should meet some of the gentleman drivers I've shared sports cars with, mate. They, uh, they're they more than happy to spray champagne having driven exactly 10 laps at the start of an endurance race. So I wouldn't be too yep. bothered. That that would be that would be my standpoint if I if I had enough money to be a gentleman driver, I'm sure. Got to take what you can get. And, and there must be a few ambiguities as well on the team stats as well, given how often they change names and so on. Well, indeed. I mean, Ferrari, obviously, who have been around since the very first season, not the very first World Championship race. They were not there at the British Grand Prix. They, they showed up at the Monaco Grand Prix of 1950. They've missed um, a, a dozen or so Grand Prix uh, World Championship events, I should say, to give it the correct title, uh, down the years. In the 1950 French Grand Prix was one of those events. Uh, Enzo Ferrari did not send cars to that event. But there was a privateer at that event called Peter Whitehead who entered his own Ferrari, which it used to be the case that you could enter uh, privateer cars that you just bought um, from a manufacturer. That was, that was outlawed at the end of 1980. That was actually for the first three decades of Formula One, it was like that. So Peter Whitehead was in the 1950 French Grand Prix in his privateer Ferrari. That means if you look up Ferrari's records um, in World Championship history, their cars have started one more Grand Prix than have Scuderia Ferrari, which um, can trip people up. Uh, it's, it, it's what us, uh, in, in, in our conclave, we call it the Whitehead anomaly, Peter Whitehead at 1950 French Grand Prix. Uh, for the same reason, Ferrari engines have started two more Grand Prix than Ferrari cars. There have been two events, USA 1960 and Britain 1966, where we've had two more, uh, we had two cars with Ferrari engines that weren't Ferraris, but Ferrari themselves didn't show up. So that uh, tips the balance in, in the Ferrari engine department. And then you've got another great example, uh, Team Lotus, Colin Chapman's Team Lotus. They're iconic, of course, but the first four uh, World Championship wins for a Lotus chassis were taken by Sterling Moss, who was driving for Rob Walker Racing. They bought a Lotus. Colin Chapman himself had to wait until the end of 1961 when his Island won at Watkins Glen before one of his chassis won a Grand Prix with his actual team. And then just to make it even worse, of course, there was this sort of Frankenstein Lotus that came along in the 2010s. And Kimi Raikkonen won two Grand Prix with the chassis that was called a Lotus. 
in 2012 and 2013. And we can pile that on as well, whether or not you think it's a Lotus or it's not a Lotus, because of course there was about four teams called Lotus all at once. Uh, so that can get very, very ambiguous very, very quickly. Okay, a big one to finish with, Sean. What do historians in our beloved sport consider to be the most ambiguous statistic in Formula One history? Well, gentlemen, settle in because this is an absolute belter. I give you the case of Hans Heyer, who, if you know what, where I'm going with this, you're going to be like, ah, yes, I know this one. But if you've never heard it, it's brilliant. Hans Heyer, uh, a West German driver back in the days of Western East Germany, failed to qualify his Penske, which was, was entered by ATS, who a team would subsequently go on to make their own uh, chassis, at Hockenheim in 1977. Now, Hans Heyer should be nothing more than a footnote in history. He'd failed to qualify. He was the first reserve, in case anybody couldn't start the race. Back in the day, the reserves sort of used to hang around. And in case somebody didn't make the start, they would be bumped up into the starting grid proper, so just to make sure there was a full grid. Now, that day, everybody did start the race. But Hans Heyer, uh, being an opportunist, decided, I'm going to have a bit of this anyway, and started the race nonetheless. So he had one extra guy out there that shouldn't have been out there. Now, the car... Uh, broke down after only about nine laps or so. So it was a very short day for Hans Heyer in his opportunist state. Now, only after that had happened, after the car was out of the race, had the officials for the German Grand Prix realised that he shouldn't have actually started the race at all. Should never have been out there. So they then excluded him from the race results completely. Now, gentlemen, I pose to you, should Hans Heyer be credited as DNQ? Should he be credited as DNF or should he be credited as DSQ? It has been a conundrum that has affected us from that day to this. Well, I mean, I don't know where to go with that, Sean, quite frankly. We're all, aff <laughs> we're all affected by that, I think. We can <laughs> deeply, deeply. <laughs> that is the, I believe that is the doyen of affectation. <laughs> it is, that is the doyen. I mean, if ever there was a definition for doyen, there it was. You um, are welcome. Fantastic stuff, Sean. Love it. Um, and remember, if you have any questions or comments related to anything Sean has talked about on the show, drop us a line on social media using the hashtag RamcoF1Focus. Right, it's time to turn our attention to the business of performance with Mr. Alex Brundle. And I gather for this episode, Alex, you're going to be speaking about a topic that's been particularly hot this season, one that's caused as much contention with fans as it has with drivers. Take it away. Oh, there is a collective groan, isn't there? I, I can already hear the collective groan. I, I think it's the pinnacle of performance points because it's so contentious and it has cost certain drivers so much throughout this season. Of course, it is the modern joy, the the post the post two thousand joy of track limits that we're going to discuss. Um, it's it's been a something that various teams have protested in recent Grand Prix, and it's something that fans and drivers and teams just cannot seem to agree, along with regulation makers, on a direction to solve where. We get to the end of a qualifying session or even in recent times a race and agree that the action that we have just seen, the, 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 the piece of sport that we have just seen, the Grand Prix distance, was achieved 
within the rules. And sometimes it takes us as much as a week to determine what takes a tennis umpire 30 seconds to determine, which is, was the play in or was the play out? Why can we not do so? But why, oh why, do we spend so much time talking about track limits in Formula One these days? So there was a a directive uh, that that came in along with tarmac runoffs, and it, it, there there are a sequence of uh, of agreements between drivers and teams and regulation makers that tarmac runoffs were the way forward. And the reason why this was considered is because the the understanding is that Formula One cars are designed to run on tarmac, and therefore, in most of the scenarios where cars have most of the wheels or at least some contact with that runoff area surface, they would slow down most effectively on a tarmac runoff. The absolute pinnacle, the doyen, if you like, of this is a Paul Ricard circuit that actually took to these massive tarmac runoffs and provided specific layers of grippy, of increasingly grippy tarmac as cars moved towards the scenery in order to provide the maximum slowing service for the cars. It was decided that when cars hit things, that's when there is a dangerous situation. Um, As such, we needed to provide uh, those runoff areas, and we also needed to provide a sequence of regulations to determine where cars were using them out of ordinary circumstances in order to recover the car and stay in the race, which was another factor in the the sequence of regulations and the tarmac runoffs that we had. It was deemed that the more cars were main, that they were maintained within the race, the more exciting that the race would be. So if cars were allowed to make mistakes and continue in the race, then there would be more cars on track, therefore more cars to overtake each other and be involved in the drama, therefore it would be a more exciting race. Slightly reductive, but you follow, I'm sure. Um, so there were deemed to be a set of regulations that needed to adjudicate whether cars were using those runoff areas for performance reasons or whether they were using them to recover the cars. And that is where track limits have come from. The reason why we spend so much time talking about them is because fans and drivers as a group do not accept track limits as a part of the rules of the sport. I give you rugby, where teams kick for touch. I give you football, where if the ball goes out, there is a throw in. I give you tennis, where we serve within the service lines. All of those rules, from day one, when they were sitting at rugby school, penning penning the scrum, the ruck, and the backward-forward pass were part of those sports. We had to dream up the track limits regulations retrospectively, secondarily, and that, I believe, is why we spend so much time talking about it, because fans, teams, and drivers don't really acknowledge and accept that we actually need to have them. And I suppose one of the issues could be the circuits themselves, because modern tracks are used by all sorts of disciplines and and perhaps what works for Formula One doesn't necessarily work for, say, MotoGP or, or another championship. So I am one of those awful 
torrid people who scream gravel every time anything happens with regards to track limits. Uh, and and I will do so later on this pod. But um, it is a huge issue. So the, the ideal setup for a motorbike uh, in terms of uh, runoff error, and I'm sure I will have those who are more versed in these issues writing in, you know, angry, angry from MotoGP paddock, writing in uh, and telling me otherwise. But I'm led to believe the ideal scenario for a, uh, a, a motorbike is soft standing where bikers can fall, ideally slide, but if not roll, uh, and then hay bales. That's, that is uh, to, to slowly bring a bike to a stop. They don't like gravel. It makes the bikes tumble dangerously and then potentially land on top of the riders, which is an awful scenario for, for them to have. They don't like big curbs because it causes the bikes to high side and again tumble. The ideal scenario for cars, I firmly believe, is gravel. It brings cars to a stop. It prevents them. Uh, it prevents cars you know, making the barriers and it means you can dust them off, clean them out, and send them again. It stops cars abusing those runoff areas. So, yeah, all of the differential uses for the circuits definitely cause an issue. And critically, as as so often in motorsport, it all comes down to money, which is that there are not enough car events to run the circuit with entry fees, engagement numbers, attendance numbers to keep the circuits afloat unless these racetracks run all different types of motorsport on them. And so that's what causes the issue when the circuit needs to be available for a variety of purposes. Yeah, it's it's a difficult thing to fix across the board, isn't it, I suppose. But you, you wear a couple of different hats, the broadcaster hat and the racing driver hat. As a driver, do you think differently about track limits, differently to how you think about them when you're a broadcaster? Entirely. And this is the and this is the issue. You know, I when you when you're within the car, you cannot understand how anyone could be so unbelievably pernickety as to throw out the lap that you've just done for being a, a millimetre over over track limits. You, you think it ruins the sport. You think that everything about it is entirely pointless. When you look at it as a fan or a broadcaster, you look at it in terms of any other sport. The If the ball goes outside the lines... That uh, if the ball goes outside the lines, that play is invalid. It makes entire sense. And it's so difficult to explain as a driver that concept that the fans will always challenge us with, which is, why don't you just drive the cars inside the lines? We don't understand how the best drivers in the world, theoretically, so you claim to be, are not capable of driving their Grand Prix cars or their racing cars within the track limit surface um as a driver it's abundantly clear why you're not capable of doing that uh, and that clarity is 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 pretty difficult to explain but definitely explainable from a driver's perspective well following on from that i was going to say if you had any did you have any sympathy with um formula one drivers and formula two drivers who say that they can't see the white lines because obviously it's quite difficult to see out of a single seater racing car 
um, even when you're parked, let alone when you're going at uh, 100, 150 miles an hour. Well, I give you turn nine in Texas. Let's take that. It's a big track limits issue. You go round the tight right-hander of turn eight. The circuit heads then on an incline through the apex of turn nine. You crest over what's quite a bumpy rise. Put yourself in the car. As you go through the middle of turn nine, you're sitting in the bathtub, in the enclosed bathtub, of a Formula One car, and the regulations state that the headrest must have at least eyeline with you. It must it must sit at least alongside your eyes. So there is absolutely no way you can see left or right. The team have put you as low as possible in the car. You're then at a 30-degree or 20-degree incline. You're looking at a fading sun. So... As you as you head out of that corner, there is absolutely no way at all to see what you are driving over. So that is the sympathy that I can relate to. Formula One drivers should be able to judge the white lines appropriately, though, by and, and it falls into the fact that they're able to judge everything else. The millimetres to the curbs, the millimetres to their uh, to millimetres to the drivers they're racing. They should be able to judge everything else. It's more towards the difference of the mind, the part of the mind that a Formula One driver is using to drive the racing car, which is not the conscious judgmental mind. You're using the fight or flight mind to drive the racing car, which is why they can't resist just going one more metre over. And it's a case of the the discussion that's going on in the mind, which doesn't fully acknowledge the consequence unless it is a physical consequence. And that is the hard thing from a driver's perspective. Yeah. And when we talk about physical consequences, I suppose the obvious question becomes, why is it that drivers can respect track limits at a place like Monaco, but not a circuit with big wide runoffs? Is it just a, a mentality thing? So as far as your mind is concerned, when you're driving a racing car, you're in the zone of flight, of fight, flight, or freeze. You are running from a, a woolly mammoth. You are hiding from a tiger. You are doing uh, something dangerous or very, very important. Uh, that is the way your mind works. So the, the concept that you're going to have consideration. Well, it takes a large amount of consideration for the part of your mind which you know, makes plans, does sums, uh, considers potential consequences of immediate actions, has to be incredibly powerful to take over that area of the brain, which is why your, which is why. It is so impressive when you hear a driver like Oscar Piastri, for example, come over the radio so calmly and consider quite emotive situations in such a calm manner. So what we tend to do when we're in that mind state is consider immediate consequences. So if my car goes over there, will I hit that wall? would be quite an immediate consequence and is an extremely easy thing for the kind of mind that you're in when you drive a racing car to understand. 
if I go over that white line, will a disassociated group of people consider my consider my effort in this competition invalid with regards to a kind of evolutionary and ever moving set of regulations or not is quite a difficult thing for that kind of mind to understand so i would argue that it's not a lapse in judgment it's more a lapse in comprehension from drivers who are thinking only of nailing the best possible lap under the maximum possible pressure, veins full of adrenaline, and you're asking them to then consider something in that state, which is violently hard to do and very much against uh, their, their abilities in that moment. Alex, would a solution to the track limit situation um, be if there was a, um, a car's width worth of grass separating the track and the, and the tarmac runoff? Because surely then it would become self-policing uh, to not run across the grass. And I don't mean grass crete, I mean grass. So therefore there is a, the risk of damage to the floor um, and obviously the, the obvious risk of losing lap time just because of the lack of traction but it would ostensibly still be a flat surface. So, you know, the, the motorcyclists would not be tipped over. Um, you know, they wouldn't have bikes tipping over or humans tipping over when they uh, low side or high side the bike. I think you've got several options here, haven't you? I mean, we've, we've taken out the option of big curbs. It destroys drivers' backs. It causes horrid damage to the cars. Um, you know, when you've got GT cars, as we saw uh, a little while ago in Monza, taking off uh over the roger chicane and landing in the runoff or or young drivers having to have surgery on their backs because they've launched over a large sausage curbs it's abundantly clear that putting any kind it should have been abundantly clear anyway to be honest that putting any kind of ramp in the runoff area is not the right solution there is the the line of grass solution uh, and i think Karun Chandok is credited originally with with uh, with that discussion, although Fuji Speedway has had that solution for years um, out of the exit of what is turn five, which works brilliantly in terms of track limits. What I would say about that solution and in favour of gravel traps, which stop the cars completely, is I think over the period of time that you know, over the last 10 years, what is extremely frightening to me is we've seen a change in the behavior of drivers who expect to never have to lift until they do have to lift. Uh, and that is the change that we see when we give drivers any tarmac runoff at all, which is that something plays out in front of you and the muscle memory, the animalistic mind goes looks back extremely quickly into its bank of experience and goes, well, the last seven times there was a smoky mess with a bit of debris in front of me. Did I have somewhere to go on the runoff area? And the brain, ostensibly, comes back and goes, yes, we did. We did. We always had somewhere to go, whether it was Barcelona turn one, whether it was Silverstone turn one, whether it was Eau Rouge at Spa, Wherever it was, we had somewhere to escape to. So 
until the one mo- the one moment where you're in the first sector at Suzuka or you're in the one area of one racetrack where suddenly there are walls flanking both sides and you don't and the muscle memory of the brain the 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 driver's muscle memory is not armed to cope with that scenario um which is why i would always support bringing back the safe the safety sitting within the racing car making the race car as safe as humanly possible and then leaving the racetracks to be the racetracks gravel and then wall and the reality of that has to be accepted by drivers who send themselves out onto the racetrack the halo's brilliant the crash structures are fantastic the drivers have to be policed aggressively in the way that they race alongside each other but once you're racing you're racing and uh, if we're going to cure the track limits issue and have a proper sport with proper boundaries to our playing surface, those boundaries, given the way that the driver's minds work when they're in the racing cars, need to be phys- physical, whether you, uh, you know, otherwise the drivers are just never going to respect them, grass or no grass alongside the racetrack. Thanks, Alex. I, th- I think we'll leave it there for now. Who knows, perhaps at some point the issue of track limits will go away, but uh, until someone can find that workable solution that works for all circuits and all forms of motorsport, we might just have to live with ongoing questions in Formula One for the foreseeable future. Now we've reached the Aramco Focus section of the show and uh, the very final Aramco Focus of the series. And what better way to wrap things up than with the final part of our trio of interviews with Aston Martin Performance Director Tom McCullough. This time he takes us inside the process of developing a new F1 car, something every team does over the winter months. Tom, at this time of year, thoughts inevitably turn to developing a new car as performance director, how do you feed into that process? Any input on development direction or attributes with the current car that you'd like to retain or potentially lose? Um, so developing a future car um, is very much an evolution of developing the current car once the regulations are stable. Um, so we obviously had a very large regulation change at the start of 2022. Um, 2023 was small, 24, there aren't really any significant performance regulation changes and we're using the same tyres. That gives us a really good data bank of data. You know, our current car, we know the strengths and weaknesses of that car at the last 22 circuits that we raced at. Um, we knew how strong we were at some circuits and, and the areas that were more challenging. We debrief um, and discuss these and uh, the, these areas they feed into the development meetings that we have on a weekly basis um and that's you know i spoke a lot about the aerodynamics but you know the the performance um development side so vehicle dynamics side the um understanding the actual data and feeding that in is key and that's a process that we're doing all the time you know, good communication between the key stakeholders are making the decisions it sounds easy but it's actually, it's a challenge because everyone's a specialist, everyone's trying to extract the most from um, their area. But as a global side, that, you know, that's the role that um, you know, the key technical people have is to make sure that you know, we're communicating and agreeing 
and the teams below us and the teams below them are all working as efficiently as possible to achieve the same objectives. Now, you can look at your own car, you can say, okay, um, this was good, this needs to improve, um, this is what the driver wants, but actually from a simulation side, what is the best, most efficient way to improve the lap type? Now, that's what we're all here to do. Um, so, you know, a driver can say, I don't like this characteristic, and we can spend a lot of time looking at that, but we can't take our um, focus off adding base performance to the car and doing that in the most lap time efficient way as possible. And because at the end of the day, um, two o'clock on a Saturday afternoon or in the race, you're just interested in how fast you can go. Um, so understanding your own car and its pros, its strengths and weaknesses, understanding the competition, you know, being realistic, the competition don't stand still. You know, the nine teams we're fighting against, they don't take the winter off and just wheel out the same car. And everyone's developing, you know. Yes, as the regulations um, don't change so much, it tends to converge a bit. You know, we saw that at the end of the season, you know, I think there were eight different teams in qualified three in Abu Dhabi. Um, and that just out of um, 10 teams, that just shows you how tight it is. Um, so I think I've largely had to do question, Tim, but we, we look at where we're not very strong and, and we want to improve. We look at where other people are stronger than us um, or weaker than us and, and try to feed that into our understanding. And then we rely heavily on our simulation tools. And we have, you know, it's a simulation tool development race as well as a car development race, whether that's the winter or whether that's a CFD, whether that's the simulator, whether that's the offline simulations. They're only fed, those tools are only fed by the data. They're only as good as the data you're putting into them. So, you know, your aerodynamic models, your tire models, your vehicle models, your power unit models, you're always trying to improve that. You know, it's constant process that everyone's feeding into. And our job as maybe key um, uh, you know, technical directors within the team, so performance, engineering, and uh, technical director, is to make sure that we are all singing from the same hymn sheet and trying to achieve um, or aiming towards the most lap time and sensitive areas. It's a very intense workflow. Are there, are there times in the process where your role becomes more involved or less involved? So I, this is now my 10th season at the team. The first five years I, I was chief race engineer. So I was really responsible for the track side engineering um, side and was, you know, the race engineers and the strategy. Um, over the last five years, um, uh, I've been working as a performance director. So my remit has moved to managing additional groups. So the um, the aero performance side, so they're the group that analyzes um, the actual on-car data and feeds up to the aero development function. Um, uh, all the vehicle dynamics engineers and simulation engineers um, who are, you know, they help us at a race weekend, but they're also heavily involved with the design of future car um, uh, process. All the trackside facing software engineers, um, and that is such a key part to our role now. The data is vast. We generate vast amount of data. Being able to post-process, analyze quickly, give the right information to the right people at the right time is key, and that's an area we've invested heavily in in recent years. Um, so, you know, and then, of course, there's lots of subsidiaries. There's the tire group, there's the, um, you know, simulator, simulation, there's lots of sort of areas and it's getting that, that body of engineers to be as efficient with the resource we've got 
to make sure that we are um, you know, providing the right information to other technical groups because there's no point us doing a great job in our area but not providing the right information to people who need it for the global optimization of the car. So my role in the last five years, though I still go to the track, so I'm still overall responsible for all the engineers there. I've been developing sort of a sort of a wider remit over the last five years. And as performance director, do you enjoy that process of introducing a new car compared to working with a car you're very familiar with? Do you just see it as potential waiting to be untapped? There's always an excitement the first time you run a new car. Uh, you, it's a relative game. You don't know what everybody else is turning up with, so you always have that. Oh, I wonder, you know, have people's winters been as strong as ours, better, worse? You know, um, you, it's a combination of a lot of people's hard work um, at every level, not just the design, development, engineering, where the manufacturing side. It's one of the most exciting times in the factory, and this will be the first time in our new campus that we're obviously. Uh, assembling a brand new car uh, so we moved in here halfway through the year but the the buzz of the excitement around all the departments whether it's on the design side the development side the manufacturing side the all the facilities that you know functions that feed into that car it's just an exciting time you know and then you go run the car and start the process again well that was tom mccullough performance director of the aston martin f1 team who's been a great guest for these past three episodes. Tom, thanks so much for coming on. Well, that's about it for this episode and indeed this particular series of the show. We do hope you've enjoyed the insight Alex and Sean have provided over the last 12 episodes. And remember, if you love Formula One, be sure to like, follow or subscribe to the Race F1 Tech Show podcast feed to ensure you never miss an episode of that podcast or this one. Alex, many thanks for being part of the show, the last 12 episodes. Have you enjoyed it? Absolutely loved it. It's been brilliant to hear Sean's stats uh, and chat to you all about the performance elements of F1. And uh, yeah, what a pleasure it's been to chat, gents. And Sean, what about you? Had a good time? I have. I have. I've really enjoyed the way Alex has sort of psychoanalyzed elements of being a racing driver that really we we don't really hear about very much. So it's been fascinating to sit here and listen once I've rabbited on about some stat from yesteryear and then getting Alex's uh, perspective on something that obviously I don't do, which is actually driving the cars. Well, it's been a real pleasure. Good stuff. Thank you both as ever for joining me. Until next time, it's goodbye from Alex. Goodbye. Goodbye from Sean. Bye. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. The Athletic.